everyone, and thank you for joining me. I'm Tracy Harris, and this is At Home in My Head, the podcast that explores life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. So joining me again this week is David Entz, who promised to come back after our last discussion. We ran out of time, and we had a lot more to discuss. So thanks for joining me again, David. Well, thank you so much for having me again. It was really quite an experience being here last time. I really enjoyed it. As I said, I've got some good feedback from many different people. What we didn't get to last time, there was a few things, but one of the things that I really wanted to get to that we didn't was your experiences of racism in different countries. A place to start might be here in Barbados, where I am right now. Uh, You would have given last time my background. I've spent most of my life here. Maybe sometimes when you go other places, you start to realize maybe how racism also affects you here. Because often when you grow up in a a place which is majority black, we talked about this, you don't always immediately see uh, racism in the same way because I think we're maybe 80% or more black here in Barbados with some Indian and a little bit of Chinese population, but mainly Afro-black. And so it's easy to kind of think, well, racism is something that affects us in other countries. What I would say is uh, how I've experienced here is that the whites that we do have here, they don't have the political part in the same way, at least not directly, like our prime minister is black, all of the black ministers are black, most of the civil service, the police, the fire, you know, the lawyers, the doctors, the engineers, most of, many of them, or most of them are black. Where where the difference comes here is that in terms of ownership of different entities in Barbados, and I would say this is, I say Barbados, but let's say maybe the wider Caribbean, because people are going to say, well, who is he talking about? But from a very much a Caribbean perspective, tends to be in the hands of the, the people who are white. And that goes back to colonialism. It goes back to slavery in that sense. To a large extent, we accept that because it's the way we've always seen it. And there is a way to which that power, that the money then translates into power in a way. And that is where sometimes the racism comes in, with it being hard for black-owned businesses, for example, sometimes to compete. And we've had that situation over the years where it's been hard to get into that space. And often people will say things like, well, you know, these new people don't have the experience or you, you don't want to take a risk with them. And there are people who are there have know how to do it. But when you actually dig down on it, it is a lot to do with skin color in that kind of way. That's kind of how it works here. And then when you have that power in that, in that area, then that can easily also transfer to political power. In other countries, you have to respond to that clientele because they have more power in what they do. Well, and that would be a form of gatekeeping with the power to make an analogy to here in the United States. I think we talked a little bit last time about how football players are well paid. Many of them are black, but all of the team owners are white. Let's say that instead of it being NFL football teams and ownership, it was corporate ownership. So industry ownership. And you have mostly white people because of a history of colonialism who have ownership of the capital and of that, the means of production, basically. And if you're going to then say no one else should be able to enter into this because they don't have the experience, 
you're basically saying that I've empowered myself to have this solely and now no one else may enter because I kind of own this and I have all the experience. Well, of course you do. You also have all the capital. You also have all the means of production because this is how it started. And now you're just perpetuating it by saying, and no one else should be allowed into it because I'm the person that already has it all set up. Well, of course you do. You inherited that from a colonialist slave state. And now you're using your position of privilege and power to make an argument that everyone else should continue to be shut out of it. Exactly the same kind of thing. And sometimes you don't have to make the argument because, again, I mean, I hate to say this, but, you know, it's just part of the internalized racism, too, because many of the black people here will will also keep that in place. It's not fair to them. I said that it's mainly in that kind of maybe more subtle thing. But this year, I think it was a few months ago, in the day of viral video, a video got out with one of the white um, persons here in Barbara, a young, a young guy, too, but he was like a rant with lots of N-words all over the place. People here were like, where is this coming from? Because we don't hear this, you know, like as a black person, you don't really hear them talking to you. But this is a person in a truck. And I guess someone uh, responded to him talking and he was basically, I think in the morning, someone had come and stolen something on his land and he was just irate and he just went on saying that more or less the people should go back to Africa or wherever they came. I mean... It was shocking because, again, you wouldn't even hear this in the state. We were not expecting anything that overt. What was interesting, though, is that it started a lot of discussion. Some people saying, well, what do you expect? This is what they say behind closed doors. He never apologized. Basically, he then talked about how it was not fair to him that he was recorded. Again, this is a privilege. How dare this person record me saying these things? Because, again, as I say, how it is in the country, because of how he is, he does own, or did own one of them, I'm not going to go next to the name, but he, he is uh, one of the companies here, or is either part of the family of the companies here. And, of course, there was a big, um, a definite campaign to disavow from him, but there was never really any attempt to try to sort of make peace or to sort of, well, this here's where we can show what we're doing for the black community. It was just trying to save reputation and save face. That was interesting to me. But there were a lot of people here that were calling for like boycotts of the business and so on because of what had been heard. But then there were also a lot of people saying, well, it's not fair to the others in his family or even to other white people or to other people in the country that he have suffered or that they have to suffer because of this one person. It was interesting because when it is on our side and we are, and we are not getting in and we are being pushed out, no one sees the unfairness of that. But when a company are, is suffering because the reputation has fallen, I mean, that, that's the market. You know, someone in your family or in your company has done something negative that hurts you and you lose business. That's consequences with action. But that's not a lot of times how it was seen. It was seen as though it's not fair. You know, we should still buy from them because they're still good people. And look at all the other good things they're doing. It's part of that entitlement, which I think is the sort of status quo that that group are the business people. And therefore, we need to sort of maintain them in that position. It's not for us to get there. I mean, a lot of times because we are not there, 
people don't see as us getting there as being a special provision for us, rather than seeing, well, hey, neither does a black business or white business entitled to having its reputation there regardless of what they do. Anybody that is in any position that does something that's negative should suffer the consequences. But I don't think that that was how everybody saw it. So again, you had two sides of the coin. You know, we were talking before that how, you know, some black people will say, no, what you're saying is not fair. These people are responsible for so much of the economic benefit of the country. Why are we trying to fight ourselves? They employ us. We get opportunities from them. We get good products from them. Why come out against them? Where others are saying, but this is the problem. This is why we never get anywhere because we are the defenders. It's like we are gatekeeping them somewhere. That to me is in talking about this discussion with Barreiras. There's just one other thing is different here from, say, in the U.S. or Canada is the conversation that we have here about colonialism and the idea of trying to break away from Queen, the monarchy, as people may or may not know, Barbados, or used to be called Little England, because we are the most eastern of the Caribbean countries. In fact, slavery in this area, in the Americas, actually started from Barbados, and then the slaves were taken to other islands because this was like the first port where they investigated them, they, they searched to see, you know, it's horrible sometimes to think about this, but you know when they sort of check our bodies, like how you check animals and teeth and the different parts to see, is this slave good enough for work? So all of that happened here in Barbados and in Bridgetown. And we had a statue, Lord Nelson, who was um, a British soldier that was famous. He's been here for a long time. It's kind of a similar to the sort of Confederacy statue situation, I guess, in the U.S., that he's a symbol of oppression. But he was here for so long that it became a landmark of Barbados and Bridgetown. And for years, from the time I was a kid, teenager growing up, people were saying that we should move the statue. But it's like the bell on the cap. Nobody wanted to do it. It comes up, they have a white paper, they discuss it, it's kind of agreed on, it never happens. But interestingly enough, when George Floyd happened last year, even though that was such an American phenomenon, it really affected us here. The activists that we had here saw that as an opportunity to make a difference here. You know, like maybe now we can get the statue moved. But again, we are fairly compliant people, so nobody wanted to go and pick it in and take it down. So we had some more conversations and eventually it did come down, I think, late last year nicely but he i think he's to go to the museum like but even that it was a hard thing to do to explain to people because it was like well why do we need to move this thing because it's been there as they said in barrios he's not troubling anybody which means like it's just a monument but it was interesting at least for me i was glad to be in barrios at the time that at least the conversation was being had i think a lot of times even though i've shown you some of the racism that we get here it is not because it's not so overt except for the guy in the truck it's often not seen, so it's interesting to see people taking interest here because we have had this English and European heritage here and we have a very good education system that was built to a large extent, came out of slavery, but um, the, the churches sort of built that. There is a way that we have benefited from aligning ourselves to some extent with this sort of European values or European symbols and therefore we tend to see ourselves as What's the big deal about this whole slavery and all this thing, even though it was big here? Because in a way, we have benefited to some extent from that kind of compliance with the way Europeans do. In fact, within the Caribbean, I think
think we are known to be a bit more compliant than say Jamaica or Haiti where there were more revolutions and more attempts to, to really pull down the system. It was interesting and at least a little bit slightly positive because we got a long way to go that people were starting to recognize the impact that the, these things have had on our psyche in terms of how we see ourselves even entrepreneurship i talked about ownership you know we, we don't feel as though we, we should own anything we go do a job for someone else and that's how i was was raised not to think about well if i do well enough i can own a company and then employ people that just wasn't how we were so it's like the football players right yeah, like you can do well if you yeah. go work for for the white mm-hmm. owner Exactly. And, and again, because often the white owner isn't seen as much as it is in U.S. in a sense, it can seem as though we're doing it for our ourselves. So sometimes we're doing it for the black owner, but the black owner is still paying dues to the white owner further field. And I mean, and in the case of Barbados, you know, even though we're independent, the power is coming from other countries like the U.S., which are, you know, still mainly, mainly white. So even our the things that become popular here are things that go back to U.S. and white United States, even even things like our religion. You know, Jimmy Swagger and those guys it came down here and were like famous in things here because being a small fish in a very big ocean can sometimes be amazing thing. So when you're small and you're also black, that kind of makes it doubly hard. So that that's kind of the way that I would say that racism is experienced in Barbie. This is also... um. I would say colorism is another big thing in the Caribbean, and I sort of experienced that as well because just um, for people that might not be aware, colorism what, what, has to what, do what? with like um, shades of black skin and biases within the community. Is that correct? Um, yeah, that basically is. The way I see it is a kind of a subset of um, of racism. It's the closer to you, and I tell people this all the time, ba- the basic rule of the world is the closer you are to white, the easier time you are, you have, the, the further away from white you are, then the tougher you have it. People who know me will know that I'm a dark-skinned black man. Dark, even among most black people, and when I'm in a group, I am one of the darkest skin. It was interesting for me growing up because if people know me, I also have a sister who is several shades lighter. But even as a person growing up in Barbados, you know, you could tell the difference between when you saw a person, how they the reaction to the two of us was different. And sometimes they didn't even think that we were siblings, which was kind of hard for us because to be like, especially when you're a kid, like five or six years ago, I mean, like, why are you saying that she's not my sister? You know, we have different fathers or something, you know, like it just was odd and awkward. So it is something that comes out, you know, like people will say often that, Things like not being in the sun too much because I don't want to get too black. And, you know, people will say, like, um, you know, the pretty brown skinned person or, you know, somebody, you know, black goes with ugly. Like, it, it isn't maybe said straight away, but just by the way people talk about, and I think, you know, she's really looks good or he's pretty, or, you know, this person is okay, but they're so dark. Or, I mean, it's changing a bit now. But it's easy to criticize people for these views, and I suppose they should be criticized. But again, it is so much ingrained in us, and it goes back centuries. So often you get therefore that other element. So imagine that you have racism plus colorism. When you go overseas, a lot of times it doesn't matter. Some like people just see black as black, and therefore they just may, maybe you get sort of um, similar levels of oppression or 
racism is experienced differently depending on your shit. And that's why often I caution people sometimes who may be black or maybe even other um, non-white who, when I'm talking about my experience, they say to me, oh, I, you don't have to tell me about racism. I know what it's like. I've been there. And I say, yes, you've been there sort of, but not fully in a sense, especially if you are Asian or Latin in some ways or even maybe mixed race. In some spaces, you can pass for a white person, especially um, if you have the hair that, and again, in, in the Caribbean, there they used to be a, when I was growing up, they was told that they used to put the pencil in your hair, and this is how they decided whether you're black or white. If the pencil drops out, then you're white, if it stays in. So if you kind of have the hair that can pass for European kind of hair, you sort of get to um, slip into that group. And again, this goes back to slavery, you know, the people who were not as dark in slavery were the house slaves in the Caribbean and the few slaves who were seen as like lower, those were the darker. And again, I think this is divide and rule too. If as a white person, you kind of give the one that's a little closer to you a little bit more, you create that division. That's why when these divisions happen in the black community, I don't sort of get down on our people so much because this was set up for us to do it. These are tough things for people to talk about, and I'm glad to talk about it here, because a lot of these conversations we just don't have. I'm not bitter or angry, you know, because of my skin color is a certain way. I'm sure. proud of who I am and proud of uh, to be who I am and, and, you know, kind of love that I can be part of a heritage that has so much in it. But I think it is important to recognize recognizing it doesn't mean that you're making excuses or that you're saying, I'm not going to try. Because I find sometimes you tell people like, well, I've had this and that. And they say, well, can you stop making excuses? Look, you've been places, just try, just go out. And you can do both things at the same time. I think is what I'm trying to say. You can go out there and fight and do the best you can and have that pride. But it's still important to recognize the, the reality of the life that you live in, the world that you're living in, because it, it helps you to understand how to negotiate it. Because I always have to be aware of it and then be able to make it different from for others who come after. So that's how I look at it. So that maybe is a priority. Now, England is a little tougher for the comparison because I, I must say that, you know, as a scientist, you know, you want to compare data points, you know, you have time series that I was in England in the 80s. So I can't really say exactly how it is now. And I'm sure it's not the same way now, but it's still worth talking about because this was a fairly unique, I guess, the experience I had. My dad was in the diplomatic service and so when I was um, at school at 13 years old I moved from Barbados to England and therefore had a complete change of experience from being in a Barbados school to being in an English school and this was quite a different experience and that perhaps was maybe the first that I fully fully hit that I was black. I think I told the story last week about the time in the store when I was kind of profiled with that. And I wouldn't go into that again if you can listen to that. But all of that was in my teenage years. I remember one time a guy was asking me, um, like, you know, asking me for stuff, but all the guy, you know, an older kid in the school. And he was asking me, I don't know, for money or something. I don't know. So King's kids do. And I said to him, I can't give you what I have. I'm not Santa Claus, you know. I said to him. 
<laughs> the guy said, of course you're not Santa Claus. You're the wrong color. And <laughs> I didn't even know how to respond to that. And it was kind of like, I don't know, it was just a moment that I sort of realized that, you know, in that situation, you're different because in, in that school now, there was no majority anymore. I think there were about 12 black kids in the school. It was out of about 300. Um, it was very, very minority. And yeah, I mean, the racism, I would say more overt at that time. It's probably a bit different now, but even for people who have been back to England, but other people that I've talked to do say that it's probably a little bit more overt in the US than in the UK. It was very much a case in school there, what I would say, expectations, racism, I would say, of lower, lower expectations. I remember coming from Barbados where, you know, I did, well, I went to Commonwealth School here. I wanted to talk schools in Barbados and a school where I was known. My family was known. My dad had gone to school there. My mama taught there. And it was a feeling of, you know, everybody knew you and you can slack there, you know, because even if you weren't motivated, people say, no, David, you can't. This is not your level. You've got to do better than that. And that, not that I slackened up. And then you go to this place where anytime you slip, they assume that you just don't know what's going on. And I had this with some of the teachers there. I remember in physics, I went on to do a degree in physics. But at that time, at 13, 14 years old, it's, my parents went to one of these farm meetings and was David, like, choose another subject. Like, he's really totally hopeless. My parents came home because they were really surprised that this teacher had, had said that because they know my level and it seemed strange. There was some times when I didn't perform as well because, again, the transition was hard. You know, you're going from a school in the Caribbean. You know, you come into totally different, you know, the social... Nowadays, people would take that into consideration, but back then it was like, who cares? So it took me a while to get into my stride. So I did really well. You know, I said, okay, I'm, you know, I was kind of motivated. If this guy is going to tell me that I'm no good, I'm going to show him that he's wrong about. And I did, you know, and I, and I did really well in the exam one night in the whole year. I was one of the top in the whole year. And I mean, I was excited and happy. And then the next year, they then, they divide you by like, you know, the top will go into one stream, like different streams. And so when I went to look at the board to see the stream I was in, I was just shocked. Like the first and second stream, I couldn't see it. He put me still in the lowest stream. And there was nothing I could do about it. And that, again, the school was generally good. I'm not going to say the school was totally bad, everything, but experiences like that, I mean, it, it really, because of that, I was in a stream to do the lower exam. Like I was definitely pushed in this other direction. And when he said it, I mean, it was basically, he said, well, obviously he knows me and I couldn't have performed like how I did in the exam. So basically he has either assumed I cheated or something like that. I mean, he didn't say that, but essentially it was like, I know you can do this. Wow. I mean, it sounds weird looking at it now. But what, I mean, my parents, I mean, we were disappointed. Obviously, my parents were upset. I think he kind of was like, you're trying to show me up <laughs> like this. I'm going to push you in this direction. And, and I just became really demotivated. You know, what was the point? Luckily, in a way, in a, a year or so after I, um, you know, we moved back to Barbados and I was able to then get back into the school that I was at and then catch up there and eventually got back well enough to actually go all the way to have a degree in physics today, you know? But I wonder sometimes like how would that guy feel if he knew? But I mean, there's other things that happened, but I feel like that is, you know, one of the stories that sticks out to me about what my experience there was like 
you know, there was in that period a very much a kind of Asians had it rough there too. Like going back to your country was big, you know, the conservative government, the statue years. There were a number of Caribbean people that were there that, were, that had come back in the 50s and 60s uh, struggling to make it. And many of them didn't even get the opportunity that, that I got. Because my parents kind of assumed that, um, you know, where they pushed to get me into the school that I went to, that was mainly white. Because schools in my neighborhood were predominantly black. But sadly also, when they looked at the scores, they said, no, we're not sending David to these schools. Because, you know, you can see that the teachers don't um, assume that, that um, you know, that you're not going to do something. So I have to thank them a lot for like really having that vision or trying to get me into the better to the better schools, even though that did have obviously the racism that came with it. But it was not all bad. I mean, the, there were other, the, I made good friends there. And some of them are, you know, are my friends even today. Some of them are my Facebook friends too. So they probably heard, oh my God, this obviously David back in, uh, this is the 1980s. But no, that, that was kind of how I'm. Um, Britain was a bit to me. I mean, it is, at least at that time, pretty overt. And of course, I mean, even you saw recently with the kind of monarchy you've seen, um, the um, Megan's situation, you know, even with the royal family. So you can see that difficulty there. And I mean, if you talk to my parents, it was even rougher for them. Um, my, my parents both um, studied in Britain even before. So I don't know if there's anything more there, but that was my British experience. Uh, you know, we've done better there. I mean, back in that time, you know, um, cricket, cricket was big in England. You know, we had the West Indies cricket team was big then. So you've got respect for that. Um, that's kind of like the equivalent of the American NFL players in a sense back in that time. But in many other things, they just assumed that you, that you weren't good enough. Uh, you know, if you didn't do your homework or some, you know, like sometimes I might forget my book somewhere. And if I couldn't answer, the teacher just assumed you couldn't read or you couldn't, you know, you were, you were sent into some remedial thing. You know, it was, you had to be perfect because any time you slipped, it was like, this guy obviously does not even belong here. Did you notice a contrast between how you were treated when you had an issue like that versus the other students who were not Black? Yeah, for sure. I saw a lot of people in that school that did no work, weren't really interested in doing things, and they would get through. They didn't have to worry about these kind of issues. And it was clear, you know, and therefore they could relax a, a, a lot more. And in a way, that was just the expected, the status quo. And a lot of the stereotypes in there, you know, like Asian, good at math. Those stereotypes just kept there. You really, really had to fight hard to push against them. People were often surprised at things like, you know, the way that you spoke English because, you know, English is our first language here, but, you know, people don't always see it that way. The short answer is yes, the very big difference with people there. And then even just how they, you know, getting into those groups again, the, the parents and sometimes at the school, the parents and grandparents and everybody had been at the school and you could see that there was a sort of a protective layer around certain so it was it was almost like you went from being that student in Barbados to then going to England where you were treated really differently and yes. all the other students were treated like you had been treated in the in school of Barbados. In a sense. The only the only difference I would say to that is that within Barbados, even though as I said, I was known myself from being part of the school and stuff. So were really other students. So it wasn't like if like if it was so just me that was single out there. I mean, it was a serious environment where obviously we pushed each other to go as far as we could. 
Is it fair to say then that when you were in school in Barbados, you got the benefit of the doubt at least? Yes, for sure, absolutely. People, yeah. people thought you were capable, and if you did slack off, they they knew you could do better, and they pushed you to get back on track and to do better. Whereas right. when you went to school in England, there was this perception that if if you slack off a little bit, you're not capable. Yeah, basically. In many cases, it wasn't very, you know, it was very, very rare to be slack off because I just don't generally slack off. But if circumstances also are against you, you would also not get the benefit of that. So regardless of what it, what it was, you know, but, but yes, I mean, essentially what you're like, I'm not disagreeing with what you're saying. I'm just sort of trying to yeah, get it. Well, I was, I just want to make sure that I'm, yeah, classifying, no. that I'm framing it correctly. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think, I think so. I think that is close to what it was. When I look back at it, no, I, I cherish that experience that I had at that, at that formative age because it prepared me a lot for what was to come. I didn't know that at the time, but for what was to come later in life where I would spend a fair amount of my time as a minority in, in mainly white spaces. So the, the advantage, although it was tough, and again, the good thing I suppose about that is that when you did show your abilities after a while, <laughs> that you did it for long enough that it was either not a fluke or whatever, people then started to respect you to the extent when they realized that some of their assumptions were not correct. And I would like to think that in that way, I, I helped. But but I mean, it didn't change the systemic situation so much. But, I, but what I would say is that it did prepare me for what was to come in the Canadian setting and also the Ecuador setting, which is the other country that I lived in other than Canada. I wasn't really long enough there, perhaps, to fully experience all the ways, but what I would say there is that again, what was interesting to me is that that country was pretty segregated to around the sort of Latino versus the Negro black, and it was definitely not within the professional class there, black people. So when it was very rare to see a black person within Quito, which is where I was, the city of Quito, Ecuador. It was very rare to see a black person, African, Afro-black, who was not a person begging on the street. I was there studying, and uh, there were, I think, two of us that were black. You know, most of the others were Latino, Indian, stuff like that, and a few whites as well. It was sort of strange. We would go places, and sometimes there would be black people who were poor there. I remember even... You know, because we were doing environmental, even we went to the dump. I mean, this may sound weird, but we actually had a field trip to the dump <laughs> for, for waste management. And there were black people that were like um, foraging for food. I mean, I, I, it's hard for me to even talk about it. And then they would come up to me and like wonder, who am I? Like, what am I doing there? And why am I not with them? And why am I not giving stuff to that? Because they, they saw that connection. It was, it was a, that was a tough angle to be because I had not, because even in England or at Canada or anywhere, none of the other places that I had lived up until that point, I've been up to now, had it been that the black within Quito were, um, were seen as so poor. However, what was interesting to me was that in the coast of Ecuador, as in Colombia, as I came to be educated this way, are where the blacks are. And it's a completely different kind of thing down there. And I remember that in the year that I was in, in Ecuador, Ecuador qualified for the football, the 
soccer, what you call, what you know, they call soccer, we call football, what we call football, and you call soccer, World Cup. And I had on the jersey, and people actually thought I was a, one of the stars in the team called Delgado because the team actually is still with mainly black players. Again, this is back to the Southern American thing. I saw all of this, like, disdain for black people in general. But when it comes to the sport, this is the amazing thing. I think we'll see in the Olympics. It just fascinates me. When it comes to sports, it seems like race doesn't seem to matter that much. You know, so long as we get the gold medals, win the end, you know, the championships, the, the admiration still comes. And it just is amazing. It well, was amazing. I mean, there, there definitely is a history of segregation in sports. Yeah. But it seems as though they are willing to accept us in that more. Yeah, so I was saying that. Yeah, I was I was mistaken because I was you know where I was supporting them at that time. You know, I put on a hat on jersey, and um, you know I guess the people drinking too, so that adds. But that was definitely a different kind of experience, and it made me realize to when we talk about the different layers of racism that they are. It's so complex when you have different non-whites, and there are so many that you can be privileged in one context and marginalized in another context. And one, maybe I know it's taken a while, maybe to go to, um, you know, back to Canada, um, where, you know, the other place I've lived. I think U.S. we talk about all the time, so I don't really go into racism in U.S. that much, except that I'm always a little weary when I, because you know the history of blacks in U.S. Even when I was in Austin, even though I knew it was liberal, I was a little bit recognizing that I have to be on your P's and Q's. You know, again, you talk about slipping up. It's the same thing with law enforcement. Uh, you know that if you aren't fully on top of your game, they will also um, stop you and you can have a lot of problems. In Canada, actually, so I could go to Canada now. I've had at times to even give mini lectures to immigration officers to prove that I was a professor on one or two occasions because, you know, it's just tough for them to deal with. But Canada also, and this might be topical, I mean, what I learned from there is you have the indigenous community, and I think it might be useful to talk about this now, since we have had the very tragic news, well, I think it just came out yesterday and then a few weeks ago about these uh, residential schools and um, the mass graves and the unmarked graves. And, you know, you've heard about all of these stories about what's happened to the indigenous community there, uh, the First Nations as they're called. That was an ex- education for me as a minority there because uh, one, one of the things I would say that a lot of times that is part of Canada's dark history that I think we don't like to talk about. Or we, I could say we because I'm also Canadian or Canadian Barbadian. Yeah, it's not the nice um, sort of spick and span Canadian ideas. You know, it's not the the Canada that often we have in the world stage where the Canadians are the nice the nice ones. It's people being ripped away from their families and uh, an attempt to take the culture out of the out of the people. And now they don't have you know their land is not considered to be part of um, you know the official thing. You don't even get to interact with them. It's just real. I mean, that's the whole story. But the way it in fact impacted me is I realized that it makes you realize racism on more than one level. And what it did to me sometimes is that I would talk to people in Canada about sometimes my experience with racism in Canada. And I talked a little bit about this last week with a story with a lady um, who stopped me and saying that I was causing some nuisance with some other black guys that I didn't even know who they were. 
But I would talk about things about, hey, you know, this is sort of things that happen. And then all about racism in Canada and the Canadian person to start talking about the indigenous community, which is terrible and really bad. But what sometimes it does, it makes sometimes the Canadian person not realize that there's also anti-black racism in Canada that also needs to be addressed. It made me realize a lot of times that too often racism is seen as this one thing and therefore we just need to take this one brush and deal with it and everything would be fine. Racism goes to us all. And I mean, I guess that is one of the things that I started to realize and how complicated it is. The whole idea of the Asian hate against the Asian communities and we had that in Canada in a big way too. That's also the anti-Muslim, all these things. It's hard sometimes as a black person because you, you know that in some contexts, people from those communities do actually have privilege. Now, that doesn't mean that they're not marginalized. They are absolutely marginalized. And in the areas that they're marginalized, you do actually need to come together and fight against that marginalization. You have this kind of gray area in there. And I, I mean, I'm still trying to figure out how we deal with the idea of making sure that we we are always on the side of the marginalized communities, but still in areas where we are part of the privilege that we don't use that to also push our privilege down. So I don't know. I mean, that is sort of a, a general discussion of how I see it in um, different places. But I'd say that is a big it's a big difference when you know you're dealing with racism from a minority. What I'd like people to remember in all of this is that it's always there even if you can't see it because it, it is a way of thinking. It is a it is a structure rather than necessarily people. You know, it's not just about some white people did this, therefore it's racist. It's a whole system that is across us. And so what I will hope to do is to, wherever I am, to try to get that idea into people. And as I say, when I, when I talk about my own self, you know, acknowledge my own internalized racism and also recognize areas in which I have privilege because I know I do have privilege because of my education, because I'm a male and, you know, there's, there's other things that are there. So that's most of what I think I want to say on that issue. The conversation has to continue. I am still, you know, even though I've had these experiences, I am still processing all that I have been through in life and where that puts me and what I think needs to be done. We had a lot of conversation about how it's so, it's so, so different for different people. And, uh, and you probably have this conversation with me next year. I have some different <laughs> views on this, but yeah, it's an ever evolving situation. When you talk about the difference between structural racism and this idea that somebody thinks that it might be a really simple thing to see, if you can't see it, that it's not there, it reminds me of the conversation that I had with Captain Hunter about police reform and some of the things that dawned on me while I was talking to him about different interactions with police and different cases And it's always a question of, did the cop do something racist? And people want to have a cop shouting slurs or planting evidence or doing something that is completely overtly unethical so that they can see that this person was treated badly or treated unfairly or treated even illegally. And even then, they want you to prove to them that 
well, it wasn't just that this cop does this to everybody. Like, how do we know that it was because this person is black, right? So the cop has to act extremely out of line to even be called into question. And even then, people don't want to call it racism. The problem that I realized is that it's not about some kind of an overt crossing a line. It's about doing what they're allowed to do and how they dole out their discretion. You have a situation where if a police officer is within their rights to shoot somebody that's armed, then what happens is you get the case in front of people. You'll say, well, this black person was shot. They had a, let's say they did have a weapon. Let's say that the person was in possession of a knife and they were shot. And people will look at the case and say, well, the person had a knife. So of course the cop can shoot them. And so to them, that individual case looks like normal police protocol. It doesn't look racist. But what happens is when you pull out the view and you look at the overall trends and you see that, oh, only this small percent of suspects with a knife were shot when they were white, but a bunch of people were shot with a knife when they were black. Uh, One of the stats that I was looking at recently that was particularly stark were self-reporting rates of drug use and drug sales. And when you look at the charts, white people in college were reporting slightly more drug use and almost exactly the same rates of sales. But when you look at the arrests and the incarcerations, the convictions, the sentences, then the bar charts get really out of whack and you see like big disparity where black people are more often arrested for it. They're more often charged with it. They're more often put in prison for it. So you have this disparity. There isn't a single case in there where you're looking at it and saying, oh, yes, this is so overtly racist. There's a discretion that is allowed at every step of the way where we're cutting breaks for the white people and not for the black people. So black people are getting like the the major punch for the stuff and the white people are getting a wrist slap. They're not ending up with like a, a conviction so that they have problems now with employment, they have problems now with housing, they have problems with all these other things because they've got this criminal record, because they're generally not being incarcerated, arrested, charged, tried, convicted at the same rates. When people try to look at this on a case-by-case level, this is one of the things I've realized that was, when you talk about it being ingrained, this is ingrained in me growing up in white communities that you're supposed to look at the case. You look at the individual and you judge that individual interaction. And what that does is it keeps you from seeing the larger trend. Totally agree with you on that. And uh, that is uh, often the challenge that we have. Maybe this kind of goes back even to the, I don't know, you might get into the critical race theory thing. But the, the whole the whole idea of systems versus individuals. I, I, I've often had conversations with people and they say to me, show me the study. Like They want a silver bullet. They want, hey, here is the, when they ask you for evidence, they, here is the one, the one study, the one thing that proves racism. And not recognizing that really is a cumulative thing because of what you're saying is absolutely correct. In any situation, there's all, you can always have an argument that maybe what was done was justified. And that, I mean, and that was interesting when you asked me the question of like, how was my being treated at school different from, you know, the white kid or whatever? Because anything you give, anything I give, you can say, well, how, how do you know that, 
you know, you, you were doing something that merited it. But as you said, when there's discretion and people can decide whether to go a little bit harder on you or a little bit easier on you, that is really, really um, racism. And, and, that is, and that is a systemic thing. Systemic things aren't proven or disproven by one experiment. A scientific theory is not developed because you did one experiment and it proves that, um, that hey, you know, that G was 10 meters per second squared or whatever. It, you, you, you have a, a series of experiments and then, you know, in different, you've gone, if you've shown, um, how gravitation works in space and here on earth and different places to develop a theory of gravity that is all over the thing. And so at that point, you are justified in assuming that that is correct. It's not, at that point, it's not faith because you, you may not be able to absolutely point at one experiment and say that this proves gravity because somebody could say, well, how do you know it was a magnetism or, or some, you know, the inflamed spaghetti monster or some spirit that pushes things to the ground? Like you take certain assumptions as being true, but they're not, the assumption is well founded. You can assume racism in an interaction between a white person and a black person and the police. Not because you just want to be a victim or play victim or have an agenda, but because in enough of the studies and what we've done over the years, we can, we have seen a bias in one direction. So it is reasonable and rational to assume that that bias would occur in this particular situation. It may be that in this situation, it's greater than the norm. In this situation, it may be less than the norm. That we can't just assume that it is zero. To do that is to me to not operate in reality. And this is where I think a lot of people get hung up, as, as you say, in the individual case, because that helps the white person to just look at it as an individual case, no context. You, you don't, you're not seeing the whole movie. You see the snapshot and it's easy to argue, well, yeah, that could be anything. It's the difference between a single data point on a graph and a cluster. It's absolutely that. The, the analogy that I like to use right, for that, I think I used it last week, is climate change. I, I always like to use because, again, a lot of people who deny climate change will say to you, how do you, we had a storm last night. That doesn't mean it's climate change. There are atmospheric conditions. Uh, we are, we've been having storms for years and there's always going to be some years that the storms are going to be worse than this. Bad winters happen here and there. You know, okay, yeah, last week was warm. and this. You really cannot prove, I mean, beyond the shadow of the site, you can't say, oh, this is where the climate change part is. But what you can do is you can look at the trends and say, like, looking at the graph over time, we have more of these than we used to have. Or the intensity is greater than it used to have. And therefore, we can look at it Communitively, as this is an example of climate change, even if you can't establish that for the one case, I think that's why we have to look at it. It's not to say that for the one case, when you're going in the court of law, it's not to say that for a specific case that we don't look at the specifics of that case to come to a verdict. But in dealing, we be dealing with a societal problem. We be dealing with a wider problem. I think where often there's bias, even the way that's considered, we have to address the bigger picture. We cannot just look at it as we just want to deal with the individual things because that is how we just um, turn a blind eye. And again, when you want to turn a blind eye, it seems to me 
you look at whatever way of looking at the evidence that makes that most convenient. And one convenient way is to look at everything as a single point and not look at the patterns and not draw the inferences that are clearly there to be drawn. It seems that people have a much easier time understanding something like classism as a social structural issue. So a lot of the people that have a problem with understanding that racism is not is not a case by case thing will think that it's ridiculous to treat classism as a case by they'll understand racism is about classes people like large groupings of people in different status and different um, financial seg- segments of society. But when you talk about racism, suddenly they they find that difficult to apply that same understanding of it as a socialism. I found that too. Maybe it's easier for them to see things that they are part of that dynamic. I think we have that in Barbados as well. Um, sometimes where people want to say things are class. Maybe race is because it, is, it comes even before that. The biases push you into a different class. I have been shocked myself. Some of the uh, the statistics that I've heard about, I think maybe it was Trevor Noah on, on his show or one, one of the other things, where they were talking about the net the, the, the net worth of the average black in one of the states, I can't remember which one it was, I don't want to get one, versus white. And um, I was like, the, the black was like $9 or something. <laughs> I compared to something like some thousands and it was done in a kind of comedy routine. Like the guy was eating the subway and it was just like saying, well, this is the, this is kind of like what the average black, well, you know, it was a black guy doing it. So it kind of was comedy. But I was, I didn't even know what to do with that kind of information. Like it is much more stark than I even thought it was in, in different places. And I mean, as it's in Canada, we, you know, we've seen that too. So if you look at poverty rates within the black yeah. community, it's about 30%. When you look at poverty rates in the white community, it's about 9%. It shouldn't be that hard to see. What it seems to me is that if there is any other factor that certain people can point to other than race, that's where they point to it. So that's part of the straw man. So unless you can prove a disparity is caused only because of a difference in color of skin, they consider that they throw your argument. But no one is ever saying that it is only race. But race is a big part. The greater the percentage of white people in your country, the easier it is for your country in the world. Like it's you could use that as a metric and you'd be pretty much on point with everything else that follows. Like it's easier for those countries to get loans. It's easier, you know, the GDP is different, less. And then within the country, almost invariably, the black population is the one that is below that poverty line. It's so, it's so massively ingrained. I'm still grappling with why it is that it's so hard for us to get this point across. The only thing I can come up with is that there are a lot of people who just absolutely are so vested in not wanting to see it that they don't see it, but also feel that they're rational and reasonable for not seeing it. And you're the international one for seeing it. So I had a conversation on Mayor Adler's thread. This is the Austin mayor. And he actually is a liberal Democrat. 
posting about vaccine rates that were Travis County is the largest county in the city of Austin. We're at 68 point something percent vaccination rates. We're trying to get to 70 by 4th of July. And so there was this conversation that ensued in the thread that had to do with vaccine rate disparities in communities of color. Here in Austin, the the largest community that is non-white would be the Latino or the Hispanic community. Within that community, there is some question as to whether it's access or whether it is vaccine hesitancy, like what is causing the uh, lower vaccination rates in the Hispanic populations within Texas, within Austin. I came on and I said, what difference does it make? The reality is, as a society, as a community, we are failing the Hispanic community when it comes to vaccination. If they are being vaccinated at lower rates, we need to figure out why And we need to address it based on whatever the problem is. The job is to successfully vaccinate 70% of this population. And if we have a percentage of the population that if they don't have access, then we're failing to give them access. And we need to find out why they are having trouble accessing it and get them the access. That's our job. The second question is whether there's vaccine hesitancy. If they have something going on in the Hispanic community that is a communication blocker where they're not getting the message about why this vaccine is important. If they are getting incorrect or misleading information that is spreading through that community, then we are failing to get accurate information to that community that is necessary for them to understand why they need to be vaccinated. And that is a communication failure on a social level. So whatever the problem is, If our society wants to successfully get people vaccinated at a certain rate and some community has a blocker, it should be our job and our goal to remove that blocker and to make that community successfully vaccinated. So identify the problem and then successfully address the problem. If we want them vaccinated and they're not vaccinated, we need to figure out why and we need to fix that. They're basically saying, well, this is a Hispanic problem. They don't want to do it. They're not going to do it. Let's just blame them and, and what, not vaccinate them when we need to get everybody vaccinated? That's not an option. And if we as a community are going to be impacted by this vaccination rate, I suggest we figure out how to successfully get them on board with the vaccine instead of just saying they won't do it. White people do it. The, what's wrong with this Hispanic population? And just blow them off and let them not be vaccinated. That so much fits the narrative, though, isn't it? It is so easy to put the blame on the victim in these situations. It's so easy to say, well, it's on them for not being part of us. And I learned even through this whole process, too, because the vaccines have been, that's, you could almost have a whole show on vaccines and how they've been in the world and the, the implications of that whole thing. But the black population have had history that affects, and the Latino population as well, I would think, history that affects that vaccine hesitancy. And it's important that that is addressed. You've got to, you have to put yourself in there in, in that situation and not look at it from the sort of white person's point of view. Right. You have to look at the context, right? The historical context of where these people are coming from and what kind of influences have impacted that community. But that also takes work. <laughs> And that's why, again, it comes back to talking to people in that community and understanding all the different contexts and the different nuances and recognizing, yeah, we're all in this together. Also having confidence in the different groups that they will do the right thing or we will do the right thing 
given the information and given what you need to know. Because Right. And, and talk to and enlist the community leaders, right? And the community activists, the people that you can talk to and you can get them to understand why this is best for the community, why we're doing this everywhere, not just in their community. And that if you can get them to sort of help speak to their own community in a way that they will hear, in a way that will make it easier for them to listen, whatever it takes, right? I mean, if the goal is to get everybody vaccinated, then it's our job to figure out why people aren't getting vaccinated and to try to fix that. Even to other countries too, I know that, I mean, we're looking at the U.S. context a lot, but, you know, we have to have this whole world vaccinated. And for countries, I think there's like 1% or 2% of Africa that has got the vaccine so far. I think a lot of times people want to win. It's okay, you know, my community is good. We white people, we understand that we're doing it. Like, what is the point of that? <laughs> you, you don't get to just sort of have it in the right world. It is the whole, it is the whole world that um, needs to be in this. And we just need to have the, have the conversation. And as I said, like for myself, I mean, I learned a lot more about some of those things from other black people about reasons for black, for, for vaccine hesitancy. It's pretty obvious the evidence is there. Just go take it, you know. But even after Carla think, well, yeah, but there's, there's these other things and the experiments and things that have gone on before. And then there's the way that you talk about it and the way that, that you have that kind of conversation. And sometimes I wonder, is the problem in, in our black community what they sometimes want? Maybe they're okay that it's killing black people more than white people. I keep thinking that if this virus was like a lot of anti-maskers, for example, or anti-vaxxers that are white, if the virus was in a different direction, like it was killing more white people than black people, and black people were saying, I don't want to wear a mask, they'd be saying, look at how these black people are trying to kill us. We'd be forcing you to wear a mask. I, I guarantee it. Yeah, that's what I mean. You know, it would be like, these black people don't care. They're selfish, just like the thing. They don't know, you know. But yeah, yeah, it's like it's easy when, because um, um, I had a friend from England that said this was the case. I don't know if she's right on this or not, but she said a lot of times in the early days when people thought that it was mainly the black people who were suffering from this, a lot of the country weren't, you know, they didn't take COVID too seriously. Well, in the U.S., I think they pretty much said it outright. They basically said that it was going to be the large cities, right, which is code. It's going to be these these very populated cities yeah. that are going to get hit the worst. It's not us out here in rural America where we're yeah. 10 miles apart from our neighbor. So why should we care? They literally were basically saying that the large populous city centers were where it was going to be hit and that that's why they didn't have to care about it. And who lives in the you know, who's living on the 10 mile ranch, yeah. right, versus in yeah. the city. Exactly. And then they'll say, well, what does um, being an anti masker have to do with racism? But it's back to that. You know, you look at the percentages, who is being affected the most, where you go. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be totally okay. A few of our population will die and get sick. But generally, that group, I think, looks at it as they are not the main ones that are going to suffer. And I mean, it sounds cynical to say that, hey, maybe that they wouldn't mind the black population being a bit less, but for some people I've met, they, they wouldn't think that's a bad deal, really. <laughs> so if you're, if you're black people, you know, um, I know that sounds. Ultimately, they don't care. Yeah. It's not even that they're thinking in terms of less people who are black. It's that they don't care if there are less people that are black. They don't care if your community yeah. is dying. 
it doesn't phase them because it doesn't touch them and none of their friends are black and you know everybody in that 10 mile <laughs> radius neighborhood that, isn't that, isn't black i guess that's the thing you know how do we get people to care this race this, this racism thing it has so many layers you know it's a Okay, so this has been Around the World with David Ince, a survey of racism in different countries. Thanks very much for joining me. I'm so glad you could come back and have some more conversations with me around this. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me again. I'm glad we got to have a nice wrap-up this time. You know, as I said, racism, a lot of layers, and we go into a lot of different things, and you make me think about some more things even while we're talking. So I really enjoyed that conversation. And yeah, let's hope the conversation goes on. Whatever forum here, wherever we can. Thank also the other people for listening. I hope people got a lot out of it. Always open, of course, for further questions. And I just want to learn. I want to share my experience and make this world better, less racist, less discrimination, less white supremacy. It won't solve all the problems in the world, but it will take away a big chunk of it. So. I, I really appreciate you having me here on two occasions. You know, that's quite a privilege. So I thank you so much and keep doing what you're doing, Tracy. I think it's really making such a difference. All right. Good night. Yeah. Good night. That's it for this episode of At Home in My Head, exploring life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay safe, be well, and never stop exploring.